Let's pray together and then we'll turn to the Lord's Word in 1 Samuel chapter 20. God, we confess this morning that the Bible was not written by the will of human authors, but people carried along by your Spirit wrote down the words that we treasure today. And so I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would strengthen me to preach your word with love and power. Pray that you would lift up Christ for us, lift up the steadfast love of the Lord for us. Help us to see your heart for your people in this passage. Help us to see what it looks like to trust the heart of the Lord so that we trust the plans of the Lord. Convict us for areas in our lives where we've resisted your plans rather than trusted you through them. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Those days in ancient Israel were anxious days. The massive Philistine army had invaded the land of Israel, and this is Saul's first major test as king before the giant Goliath comes and threatens the people of Israel. Philistine chariots and cavalry and countless soldiers overwhelm the land and the Israelites are completely outnumbered. Saul's army, struck with fear, has largely disbanded at the time of our story this morning. They have run for home or they ran and hid in wells and cisterns and caves in the ground. Saul is left with just 600 soldiers and none of them are armed correctly. The Philistines have wiped out all of the blacksmiths in the land of Israel. And so they come to battle with simply farm instruments like axes and sickles. The only swords in the army of Israel belong to King Saul and the crown prince, Jonathan. The situation for Israel is unbelievably bleak. One day, Jonathan, the prince, spots a Philistine garrison just across the ravine. It's an outpost of Philistine soldiers separated from the main body of the Philistine army. And Jonathan speaks quietly to his armor bearer. Come, let's cross over this ravine to the Philistine outpost. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Israel's crown prince, Jonathan, has the courage of a king. His faith isn't in his own strength. His faith is in the Lord's power. And Jonathan's armor bearer is with Jonathan, heart and soul. So the two men make their way across the ravine and they're spotted by the Philistine guard exactly as they wanted to be spotted. And the Philistines call down to them, Look, the Israelites are coming out of their holes. And they say to Jonathan and his armor bearer, Come up, and we will show you a thing. Now, Jonathan responds to his armor bearer in 1 Samuel 14, verse 12. Come up after me, for the Lord has given the Philistines into the hand of Israel. And Jonathan climbed up on his hands and his feet and his armor bearer after him. And the Philistines fell before Jonathan, and his armor bearer killed them after him. That first strike which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within an acre of land. And there was panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. 
The garrison, even the raiders, trembled and the earth quaked and it became a very great panic. Well, King Saul notices what's happening across the ravine and he counts the soldiers and realizes it's Jonathan and his armor bearer who are missing from the 600 soldiers. And so Saul gathers his men and they cross the ravine and they join the fight with Jonathan. And he rallies the Israelites who join the attack. And it's not just that outpost of the Philistine army that's routed. Word spreads and panic spreads to the entire Philistine army that's invaded the land. And they're so confused by God's power that's being poured out on them that they begin to kill one another, which sets off a panic. And they flee from the land of Israel with the Israelite army on their tails. Now, the summary of what's just happened comes in chapter 14, verse 23. So the Lord saved Israel on that day. I want us to taste a little bit of who Jonathan is as we come to chapter 20. Who is this crown prince? What's he made of? And we see in this chapter is that Jonathan has the heart of a king. He has the courageous heart of the king. He's ready to lead his people Israel into battle. And he is determined to trust the Lord. He sees that it's God's power that will deliver Israel from their enemies. Jonathan has prepared his entire life for this, to be the king of Israel. He is the one who will assume the throne. And all of Israel can see that Jonathan is ready for what's coming. But God's plans are disappointingly different. Because of Saul's rebellion, Jonathan will not be anointed king. Because of his father's rebellion, David will be anointed king in Jonathan's place. And as we saw last week, Saul resists this plan of the Lord. Saul doesn't see it as good or wise, and so Saul resists and rebels and revolts. He furiously digs in his heels against the plans of the Lord. And we honestly expect Jonathan to do the same thing. Jonathan stands to lose everything that Saul stands to lose. Only Jonathan's done nothing wrong. There's no discipline in this for Jonathan. But instead of resisting the plans of the Lord, Jonathan trusts the plans of the Lord. He adapts, he adjusts, he demonstrates faith, and he plays the role, a different role, that God had for him. Our main idea this morning is opposite of last week. Trust the plans of the Lord. Sometimes God's plans are difficult and painful and mysterious. And the question for us this morning is, will we trust him? Will we trust him? Jonathan trusted God's plans because Jonathan trusted the Lord. He trusted the Lord's heart, so he trusted the Lord's plans. Will the next generation of the church say the same thing about you and about me? In 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 1 through 11, Jonathan risks his relationship with his father Saul. See, David has escaped King Saul in Ramah that we saw last week. He's arrived back home to the crown prince, Jonathan. Jonathan, what have I done wrong? For what sin does your father seek my life? I saved his neck from Goliath. I preserved his army from slavery. I've comforted him by playing the harp and the lyre every time he's disturbed. I have led his army courageously into countless battles. I've expanded his kingdom. I've preserved his life. For what reason does your father seek my life? 
That's how chapter 20 starts. But Jonathan is not convinced there's a problem. David, the last time I confronted my father, when I fired that warning shot, he took an oath before the Lord that David would not die by his hand. Besides, my father doesn't do anything, great or small, without telling me. Now look at verse 3 of 1 Samuel chapter 20. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. And then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. David's clear about how grim things are. And his honesty about his situation isn't in conflict with his faith in God's heart. And Jonathan takes his point. And in so doing, Jonathan prioritizes David's word over his father's word. And David's plan is simple enough in verses 5 through 7. Saul is planning this big feast for the new moon. I'm not going to come. And when your father notices that I'm not at the new moon feast, tell him that I've gone to Bethlehem to feast with my clan instead. And based on your father's response, we'll know his intentions for my life. But David wants reassurance from Jonathan. David wants to know that Jonathan's still in, that he's still committed, that he's still okay with the promises that he made to David. Look at verses 8 through 9. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Now, there's a Hebrew word in this chapter that's used repeatedly, and it's important that we stop to take notice. The word is hesed. Hesed is more than just kindness or mercy, your, tra your translation might say. Hesed is devoted, loyal kindness. It is committed love. That's what David wants Jonathan to show him, the committed love of the Lord. Jonathan, I want to see that from you. You've made these promises before the Lord. I want the hesed love of the Lord from you. I want that kind of kindness. And 11 times in chapter 20, David and Jonathan, as they talk about their promises together, 11 times they refer to God in the midst of their promises. You go back and read this this afternoon and just highlight all the times that the Lord is referred to in the context of their promises. And what's happening here is God is the third party in the covenant promises that, that Jonathan and David are making together. It's not unlike a Christian marriage where husband and wife and God make promises together. There's a three-way promise that the husband and wife make before the Lord. And therefore, when David looks for reassurance from Jonathan, he's also looking past Jonathan to the Lord who stands to guarantee the promises. Remember, David says, the covenant promises we made before God. Will you keep those? And in verses 9 through 11, Jonathan reassures David, I'm all in. I'm all in. I will defend you even before my father, Saul. 
And we can see Jonathan risking his relationship with Saul in order to protect David. He's breaking ranks with his father, the king, in order to defend David. Now, we can't miss how hard this would have been for Jonathan. It's not easy to break ranks with family. For all Saul's many strange faults, he's still Jonathan's father. This is a huge leap. Jonathan needs to believe the worst about his father. He needs to believe the truth about his father. And this is made all the more difficult by the fact that Saul is king of Israel and Jonathan is the crown prince. Jonathan finds himself in a vice grip. And this takes unflinching courage on his part. He's got to live by faith in the plans of the Lord. He needs to break with his father in order to see the Lord's plans through. Sometimes we need to risk a relationship for the sake of doing the right thing and loving the other person well. Sometimes we need to stand against someone's sin because we love them. Sometimes we need to risk the relationship in order to love the person well and do the right thing. And this requires determined trust that God is using us in each other's lives, trusting that God's mysterious plans flow from his loving heart and he is with us and for us, especially when it's hard. Now, verses 12 through 23, Jonathan jeopardizes his family's future. It's not just his relationship with Saul, it's his descendants, it's his children that he's risking by siding with David. Trusting the plans of the Lord jeopardizes his family's future. Look at verse 12. Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he's been with my father. We see repeated evidence here in verses 12 through 23 that God is standing over these covenant promises. God is the guarantee of these covenant promises. The Lord is a witness to their promises. The Lord is evoked to bring punishment if they break this covenant. The Lord is to be with them in these covenant promises. God stands over these promises. God stands over this relationship and he guarantees it. David and Jonathan are not primarily looking to one another. They are looking past one another to God who stands above, the God of Hesed, steadfast kindness and love. In verses, look at verse 14. Jonathan says to David, who's now looking for assurance from David, if I'm still alive, show me the steadfast, that is the Hesed love of the Lord, that I may not die. And do not cut off, and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever, when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. David, I know what's normal. What's normal is when you take the throne, my children are wiped out, that you would eliminate all rivals from the face of the earth, and my children will be first among them. David, show my children the Hesed of the Lord. Don't just show me loving kindness. Show my children loving kindness. Remember my children, David, when the time comes for you to take the throne. Verse 16. 
And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. Do you hear what Jonathan is saying? David's major enemy is Jonathan's father. May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. That's how committed Jonathan is to the plans of the Lord. The disappointing for him plans of the Lord. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved David as he loved his own soul. Now, verses 18 through 23, Jonathan outlines his plan to alert David. They can't guarantee a personal meeting after the New Moon Festival. And so they come up with a plan that we'll see in detail in verses 35 through 40. A way that they can communicate if they can't talk in person. Now, Jonathan's ability to trust the Lord's plans is an example to us. How do we trust God's difficult plans? What do we do when God's leadership in our life is mysterious and difficult and painful? I know that some of you are carrying agonizing weight as you watch your children rebel against Jesus. Some of you are still without a job as the calendar turns to October. And you're wondering where else you can turn. And you're absorbing blows to your self-worth and self-esteem. Some of you have been waiting on God to answer prayers for a spouse while others of you are enduring a painful season in your marriage. Loneliness can be deafening. Disappointment, crippling. Sometimes pain is chronic. Anxiety and depression are constant. The pressure on our schedules can be relentless. The sense of failure ever present and persistent in our hearts. All these difficult moments can remind us that the Lord hammers out his plans in our lives in the midst of a world that's been broken by sin. He's working. His plans are standing in creation and in history and in our lives. If Jonathan resists the Lord's plans as Saul is doing, Jonathan can try to supervise the security and safety of his children. He can try to negotiate that just as Saul is doing. He can take the throne and try to use all the power of the throne to protect his children. He could do that. It would be walking by sight, but he could do it. Instead, Jonathan walks by faith. Jonathan trusts the Lord's plans. Jonathan loosens his grip on his circumstances. And the reason that Jonathan can trust the Lord, the Lord's plans, is because Jonathan can trust the Lord. He knows that the Lord is the source of steadfast love. Jonathan and David have requested from the other the Hesed love of the Lord. Show me the Hesed love of the Lord. Show me the steadfast loving kindness of God. The Lord is the source of this. The Lord is our only refuge when the world around us gives way. God keeps his promises. He's steadfastly devoted to us. He is committed in his love toward us. If you're in a rough place this morning, go to Lamentations chapter 3 later and just, just read it. The first 20 verses honestly describe the difficult circumstances the author of Lamentations is experiencing. The circumstances are like chewing on gravel. And then in verse 21, 
he famously writes this. This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. If the Lord is my portion, if the steadfast love of the Lord is mine, my portion that I get to keep, then you can take this life because I have the steadfast love of the Lord that will keep me for eternity. That's where the hope of the author of Lamentations is grounded. Now look at verses 24 to 34. Here's the climax of the story. Jonathan forfeits his kingdom. He not only jeopardizes his family's future, he not only risks his relationship with Saul, he forfeits his coming kingdom. The moment of truth for Jonathan has now arrived. The day of the new moon festival has come. Saul is there. Abner's there. Jonathan is there. David is not there. David's place is empty. And the first day, Saul assumes that David is ceremonially unclean and says nothing. But the second day, he turns to Jonathan and asks, insult intended, where is the son of Jesse? Look at verse 28. Jonathan answered, Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? A father's public humiliation of a child is very difficult to recover from. Brothers and sisters, may the Lord graciously guard the words of our mouths. so that our anger is slow and righteous. Saul's heart is angry and feverishly longs to inflict pain somewhere else. Saul feels betrayed by Jonathan's commitment to David. David, everyone at that festival knows, is Saul's chief enemy. And Jonathan sits in public at Saul's table and defends David. How dare he? And so Saul strikes shamelessly at Jonathan, calling his mother a perverted, promiscuous woman. Defending David is like parading your mother before onlookers. New depths for Saul's lack of self-control. And just imagine the discomfort around the room as father and son, king and prince carry on in this manner. But why is Saul so venomously angry? Look at verse 31. For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. 
Saul knows what the plans of the Lord are. Saul knows that David is going to be king. Saul knows that the Spirit has left him. Saul knows that the Spirit has rushed upon David. Saul knows that it's the end of the road for his dynasty. He knows this. And yet he doesn't turn. Instead, he continues to long to see David dead. And Jonathan, while you play these deceptive games, your kingdom is coming to an end. Jonathan, what are you doing? Bring David to me and let me kill him. Let me establish your kingdom. God's plans be damned. This is what's in Saul's heart. He is venomously angry at David. He's angry at God and he's angry at Jonathan. Jonathan is unmoved by Saul's blustering tantrum. Verse 32, Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? And we already know Saul has no answer to this question. Jonathan already asked Saul this question, and Saul had no answer, which is why Saul temporarily turned from his wrath toward David. Saul is left undressed, undone, and embarrassed by his son's question. He knows that David has only done good for Saul and for Jonathan. And the public embarrassment only pours more gasoline on his murderous heart. And so in a moment of terrifying tension, Saul picks up a spear and hurls it at his own son, the crown prince of Israel. The determined anger of Jonathan turns into a determined gaze straight into the eyes of Saul. Saul, who I imagine at this point panting and out of breath from anger. Jonathan rises with confirmation of Saul's intention in verse 34. Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. Jonathan stands to lose everything Saul stands to lose. And Jonathan has done nothing wrong. The crown prince of Israel, the heir apparent, the man who has prepared to become king his entire life. He has the courage and the character to be king. He's led his people in battle. He's turned the Philistines back from completely wiping out the Israelites. He is a man ready to take the throne. He's concerned with God's heart. He trusts God's hand. He knows that it's God who defends Israel. This is an amazing man to serve as king. But God's plans have changed. And Jonathan can resist the plans of the Lord like his father Saul, or he can trust the plans of the Lord. And friend, this is the choice for you this morning. How will you respond this morning when God's leadership in your life is difficult? Will you harden your heart against God, resisting him with all your heart or resisting him with a portion of your heart? No, you may not have this. No, I will hold on to this. Or will you turn and trust the Lord even when it's hard, especially when it's hard? Will you trust the steadfast, committed, devoted love and kindness of the Lord, even when you can't see it? Will you hang on with a heart of faith, trusting the Lord's plans, trusting every twist and turn that He brings into your life? Will you trust the promise in 2 Corinthians 4.17 
that this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Well, the story this morning ends in verses 35 to 42. Jonathan keeps his word the very next morning. Verse 35, we read, In the morning Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And Jonathan said to his boy, Run and find the arrows that I shoot. And as the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, Hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master, but the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, Go and carry them into the city. Jonathan runs the play exactly as he had said. He tells David to flee because Saul is, in fact, intent on killing him. And as soon as the boy runs into the city, David rises and says goodbye to his friend. Now, I don't know why they didn't just do this to begin with, but maybe they couldn't guarantee that they were going to be able to talk personally, but they do. And the farewell is emotional. Look at verse 41. As soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. The strong bonds of friendship displayed in this farewell don't need to puzzle us. David and Jonathan's heart were knit together immediately and miraculously the first time they met. There was a common spirit in them. They were both courageous, competent warriors. They're both in the vice grip of King Saul's emotions. Their futures are tied up together. David owes his life to Jonathan now. Jonathan owes the lives of his children to David in the future. They desperately need one another. They've walked through a lot together and their love for one another is displayed in their parting. These two men have walked with each other through the mysterious twists and turns of the Lord's plans. Do you have friendships like this? Friendships forged through the plans that God has hammered out in your life? Friendships made stronger by common suffering or common purpose or common victories? To thrive in our walk with Jesus, we need sturdy, lasting friendships. Friendships committed to trust the Lord's plans together, even and especially when His plans are difficult and mysterious. This is why we want to envision our life together as a family. We are not just a community of people. We are certainly not a group of customers who show up here on Sunday morning to consume services. We aim to be an interconnected family of brothers and sisters who link arms together, trusting God's plans, bearing each other's burdens through the twists and turns of what the Lord will bring into each of our lives. You know, the sad thing about the pandemic, one of them, was that the church members who seemed to have vanished during the pandemic were the least connected relationally. Take responsibility to connect yourself 
meaningfully to this body. If you sense that this is home, then formalize that sense by joining this church family, by becoming a, a body part connected to this particular body of believers. Start there. Show up each week ready to encourage others with your presence, with your prayers and singing and encouragement and conversation. Lean in and develop relationships. Invite people into your home and into your life. Share your life openly with others and pray for one another. Serve. Don't consume. Roll up your sleeves and participate in our life together as a family. It will help you develop these kinds of lasting, sturdy friendships. You see, God is writing a story in our life together that includes all of our individual stories collected together in a family. And we have the privilege and the comfort to walk through the Lord's plans together. The plans of the Lord in our lives are filled with moments of surprising plenty. Wow, I didn't expect that. And the plans of the Lord are filled with moments of sadness. Jonathan can trust the Lord's plans because Jonathan trusts the Lord's heart. Jonathan knows that God is good. Jonathan knows that the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. Jonathan's faith carries him through moments. And our faith can carry us through moments. Faith anchors us to God's heart when his plans in our lives are mysterious. By faith, we take ourselves to the keeper of promises, the one who made a covenant with us through the shed blood of his son, a covenant guaranteed by the resurrection of that same son, an inheritance given in the presence of the spirit living in our lives. So run with faith to the one dependable stronghold we have in this life. Run to it and run to it together. I want you to stand now as the worship team comes forward. I'm going to read Psalm 23, The Lord is My Shepherd, which you all will know. But I want you to listen to Psalm 23 in light of everything we've heard and saw this morning. David writes, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and hesed shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Would you sing with me? <laughs>